0: Can open up to Genesis three is where we're going to start, and then we're going to bounce a little. But Genesis three, um, I'm going to start somewhere else, but I'll meet you there eventually. Um, Genesis three. And while you're turning there, I would like to thank everybody who came or stuck around last week to help with decorating the church. I love Christmas time at CF. This church looks pretty all the time, but a little bit of Christmas flair um, goes a long way, and just very, it just feels very comfy. And uh, I'm just very happy to have. Uh, the decorations up. So everybody who stuck around, thank you very much. Especially everybody who worked on the tree. It's awesome. Uh, so thank you for that. So, uh, so recap from last week. If you weren't with us, we are looking at... I know I had you go to Genesis 3. We're actually looking. Our Advent series is based in Isaiah 9. Uh, and in the names, some of the names that would be for the Messiah. And so in Isaiah, um, the people of God have already been in turmoil. By the time Isaiah is preaching... He is the kingdom of, uh, the people of God are already separated into two kingdoms. You have the north, you have Israel, you have the south, you have Judah. They are separated. They have foreign rulers. um, And due to mostly their own rebellion and their own pursuits of sexual immorality, drunkenness, idolatry, general debauchery as a people, God has sent Isaiah to say, you are to be judged. You are to uh, suffer consequences for these things. Uh, in the form of for, foreign uh, persecution and foreign rule. Namely, the Assyrians are going to be coming very soon. Um, but in the midst of that, as all the prophets do, no matter how bleak it looks, no matter how bad it looks, God sends also a word of hope. And Isaiah gives this prophecy, gives this vision, this clear vision where he speaks almost as if it's already happened. It's so clear and so sure that it will happen. This day that would come of this one who would come to fix things, who would restore things. And he says in Isaiah 9, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as one on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder." And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So Isaiah has this vision that though there is darkness, though there is anguish and pain, there will be a day where that will be put to end. And the people wanted a warrior, they wanted a leader, they wanted a king. And Isaiah says, you're going to get a child. You're going to get a baby boy. And that baby boy will grow to be this one who will be the Wonderful Counselor, as we looked at last week. And today we're going to look at Jesus as the mighty God. And so that's where we're going to go today. Uh, I'm going to pray and then we can jump in. So please bow your heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for today. We thank you that um, you have given us this day. You didn't have to, but you opened our eyes this morning. You gave us breath in our lungs. You gave us today to be able to celebrate you and glorify you and be together both in person and online, we get to celebrate and worship and open your word together. We get to hear from you. And not only down here, but also upstairs as our children are up learning and learning about the the goodness of you, the, the mercies of you. Learning that you are the God who made them and knows them and loves them so much you would send your son to die for them and for us. God, we pray for our kids, we pray for our uh, Grace Place leaders as they worship as well that you would be with them and fill that place upstairs with not only excitement and fun but with your presence as they, as they learn about you. And Lord we ask the same for us as we open your word. You have a reason for us to be together this morning to be hearing this, to, this morning, to be in your word in these passages today. So, God, help me get out of the way. You have a message for all of us. Individually, you have something that that we need to hear. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, minds to comprehend, hearts to believe, and hands and feet to respond. As I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So as I said last week, we started this series looking at Jesus as the wonderful counselor. And we talked about how wonderful means wondrous, mere miraculous. It is the space and existence that only God can exist and act in. The realm that only God can function in. And we talked about how Jesus would also be a counselor. He would be and is the very beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And that wisdom and knowledge far supersedes anything this earth can possibly offer us. And not only that, but in the way that he would act and the way that he was with his wisdom between the acts of wonder and the wisdom and knowledge that he has superseding everything else, it would produce for us a wonderful counselor, a counselor who goes above and beyond, exceedingly abundantly beyond anything that we could possibly want or need. And not only that, but this promised one, this child that Isaiah speaks of, would not only dwell and exist and function in this realm, which only God can exist and function in, but he would be God himself. That's what we hear this morning. He is a wonderful counselor, and he is mighty God. That name mighty God is El Gibor. I don't usually give you Hebrew and Greek, but when it's fun and cool to say, I like to give it to you. El Gibor, mighty God. It's actually God mighty. We'll get into that. And so I want to talk about this name, mighty God because the names of God you see different names for God throughout the Bible and each one reveals different parts of his character different parts of who he is it's this little different glimpse into different parts of who he is he's all of these things all at the same time if you ever do a study ever look at the different names of God he is always the God who sees he's always the God who heals he's always the God who loves he is always the mighty God but at different points in different times, you see humans, you see us experience different elements of God's uh, character, maybe stronger at different times than others. And so we see, you see different people call out to God with these different names. El Gabor. El comes from the root of one of the most common names for God, it's Elohim. And so I had you to go to, to Genesis 3. I'm going to start in Genesis 1, the beginning of the book. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before the beginning, there was God. It doesn't say in the beginning, man was created or that the earth was formed. It starts in the beginning, God. The very first four words of the Bible of God revealing himself to us in this way is in the beginning, God. This sets up for everything else that is going to come over the next a couple of thousand years that the Bible is written, and everything going forward, it all comes back to, in the beginning, God. It starts right there, right at the top. Here's who's to focus on. Here is who is most important in this. Here is what everything comes back to. God, El, Elohim. It starts in the beginning, God, because everything starts with God. Elohim existed before the beginning. Before, he was, before there was a beginning, there was God. He began the beginning. He created time, which means he is not subject to or controlled by time or anything else that has been created. He is outside of it. He created it. He is not subject to his creation. God is always in the present tense. He is yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is, all of that is the same for God. He is always in the present tense. And he has always been existing, even from before the beginning. He's the one who said, this is when beginning starts, because before that, it was just God. God. He has no beginning and He has no end. He will continue forever. He has no beginning and He has no creator. He was and is and will always be. You and I, we are finite beings. We are limited in our understanding, in our scope. Really, to fully grasp this idea of being outside of time, I think is something that we can only kind of tiptoe up to the line, but I don't think we can ever fully grasp that reality until we are on the other side of eternity. But what this shows, who this God is, is that God doesn't have restrictions. He isn't bound by our concepts and thoughts. I read there's a, there's a theologian who said this word Elohim, this name of God, Elohim, El, means the holy other. Something completely different, something completely outside of everything else that we could possibly experience in this world. And so the Bible opens with a focus on the main subject of the rest of everything else, God. There is one true eternal God. The book doesn't start with plural gods or the God and the universe were one in the same. It's not that He is some unidenti- unidentifiable force. It starts with God, the Elohim of Elohims. He is set apart from any other deity, any other religion. Our God was the one who got things started. He created all things, and in creating, is, that is part of His character and nature. His activity in creation, in speaking all of existence into life, his activity in creation does not stop with him creating the world and then walking away. It's still going on. He is still active today. We don't live in a world where God made everything and then like a top, he spins the top and walks away and says, all right, good luck, hope you figure it out. No, Romans 8 tells us he is working in all things for the good of those who love him. He is working all things out. In Psalm 23, we are reminded that God is the good shepherd who leads us, who guides us, who protects us, who comforts us, who engages with us. Psalm 27.5 talks about God being a safe shelter for all people, even today. He is always paying attention. He is always involved. He is always engaged, always at work in your life. Elohim is personal and involved. And he is personal and he is involved and we see it when he restores the chaos that sin creates. And we see that in Genesis 3. Sin enters the world. Adam and Eve have one instruction. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from the fruit of it. You can Do anything you want. You can dance around it. You can hang from it. You can carve A plus E forever. Do whatever you want. Don't eat the fruit. There's one rule. Satan comes, and we talked about Jesus as the wonderful counselor last week. Satan comes as this imposter counselor, trying to counsel Adam and Eve with lies and deceit because that's all he can do. And he convinces Eve and deceives Eve, and Adam stands there silently, staring off into space, not stepping into the role he's supposed to be doing, not paying attention, and the two of them eat of the fruit of this tree They both do the one thing they were not supposed to do. They decide they know better than God. Their way is better than God's way. And so we see in verse 8, if you look at chapter 3, verse 8, it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hear Elohim walking in the garden. Again, he is present. He is involved in his creation. He knows exactly what just happened. He is not caught off guard. He is not oblivious. He is not surprised by the fact that sin just entered the world. But he goes looking for them. He calls out for Adam, and sin has entered the world, and God goes looking for his creation, and they are already feeling the effects of sin. They hid themselves, but there is shame, there is guilt, there is fear. These things didn't exist just moments, before, just moments prior. Already, creation is feeling the effects of sin in the world. He goes looking for them. Why? So that he can be in their presence. To let them know that, yes, things have changed. Yes, there will be consequences to your rebellion, to your actions, but also there is hope to be had. If you skip down to verse 15... God addresses Adam and Eve and the serpent, letting them know, here are the consequences, here's what, how things are going to play out now going forward. And he says in verse 15, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Note that that is singular. He, again singular, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The first promise of the Messiah The first time that the gospel is preached, it is God preaching to Satan, giving him a hashtag spoiler of what's coming for him. That verse is Elohim promising to restore what has been broken by sin, and we talked about last week, not only restore what has been broken by sin, but go above and beyond to give us more than we could ever want or need or deserve. And God even takes it a step further in this, in the mess of sin entering the world and these relationships being severed and broken. He even takes it a step further. If you go down to verse 21, it says, The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. You might see that and say that's a, that's a throwaway line. Before sin enters the world, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. Amen to the glory of God. Now sin is there. And shame and guilt and And these different things are here, and there's this separation. They hide themselves, they clothe themselves with with leaves. And here it says, God makes for them, after he removes them from the garden, it says, God makes for them garments of skins and clothes them. Those are animal skins. Some animal had to die so that God could clothe Adam and Eve. The first example of the wages of sin is death is shown right here. The first sin offering is made right here. And it's not by sinners, but on their behalf, God provides for them and shows them if there is sin, if there is rebellion, there must be bloodshed. Here, God is providing for his people and giving you, this is an example, here's what's coming down the road. See, that's what God does in our weakness, in our hopelessness, helplessness, God provides. El-Ohim, the holy other, provides the way for us to have a relationship restored with him through sending Jesus to die for us, to pay the penalty that sin demands, that death that we so rightly deserve, so that anyone who would put their faith in Christ and him alone would be forgiven and saved and given new life. And it's there in Christ's sacrifice, in Christ's resurrection, that we find the mightiness of God. We said this name is that he is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God. El Gibor. This word mighty, this word Gibor means warrior, champion, hero. It's different than when you see Almighty God. That talks of God exclusively about his deity, about his actions of power. And while Mighty God has some of those same connections to his deity, deity, Mighty God talks about a, a warrior, someone who will go to battle for us often used to talk about a general winning a battle, more specifically being able to lay out and execute his plan of attack in war. He is a champion and a warrior, a hero, if you will. It's exactly the kind of God you want, isn't it? I mean, if you're gonna have a God, it might as well be a champion, a conqueror, a hero. And so we saw last week with Wonderful Counselor that that was a name reserved for God, and we saw it applied to God. Same goes for Mighty God. It's not just for Jesus, it is for God himself. This name is used of God just a chapter later in Isaiah 10, 21. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the Mighty God. Again, Isaiah is talking about, look, it looks bleak, it looks dark, it looks ugly right now, but there's coming a day where there will be restoration, and the people who have wandered from God, the people who have found themselves in darkness, who have found themselves walking away from the law and the love of God, will find themselves coming back to this mighty God. Jeremiah uses the phrase in Jeremiah 32, you know, you, you show steadfast love to thousands but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty in deeds, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. God is the leader who executes his plan, who defeats his enemies. He is above all. For him there is no rival. God and Satan are not two sides of the same coin. We're not talking about balancing the force. There is one mighty God, El Gabor, and then there is everyone and everything else. Deuteronomy says it this way in Deuteronomy ten seventeen, For the Lord your God is God of gods, that's Elohim of Elohims, the top of the tops, and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty And the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Sidebar. Did you know the word awesome is in the Bible? Like I thought that was like a 90s word that got made up, like amongst the neon. No. Awesome is a word that it comes from and is derived to explain God. It is this, I don't have the words to explain him. He is this other thing. Awesome. That's who God is. The people expected and wanted a king. They expected a warrior. They hear these things. They hear these prophecies and they want a warrior. They want someone who could rule. They want someone who could go to war with Rome. They want someone who could go to war with the Assyrians. Someone to go to war with the Persians, the Babylonians. Whoever it is that's oppressing them at the time. They want someone who could defeat these armies. They wanted a mighty God. But the mighty one that they expected, the prophet says, is going to be a child. How can a child be a mighty, conquering hero? Because Isaiah says it's not that he's going to grow in to be the mighty God. No, his name will be called Mighty God. Not he's going to learn it, he's going to adapt it, he's going to grow into it. No, right from the jump, he will be Mighty God. But he was. Even before, long before getting to the cross, Jesus was the Mighty God. His arrival alone, the birth to a virgin young girl, is something completely other And on top of that, his arrival causes the stars in the sky to change, affects and influences the decisions of the king. Just because a baby was born, it causes mystics and spirituals to go on years-long journeys looking for him. Even today, we still count the passing of years by his arrival. He wasn't just some guy. This was God showing up into earth and changing and affecting everything. As we sing this time of year in Hark the Herald, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, clothed with skin and bones and ligaments, hidden beneath that skin and bones and ligaments, is God himself, veiled in flesh. Jesus our Emmanuel, God with us. In Christ, God was and is with us. And so he spends years performing miracles, teaching with a wisdom and clarity that could only be described as wonderful. This one who would come, who would put an end to the anguish, this one who would put an end to the pain, this one who would bring renewal and restoration and new life, he would be God himself. This is a direct correlation to say the Messiah is not just going to be some guy. He's not just going to be some warrior. Yes, you're looking for a king and a leader like David, but one who is greater than David. Yes, you're looking for a prophet and a, and a teacher like Moses, but one who is greater than Moses. And greater than them is God himself. El Gibor, the mighty God. See, the Bible has a lot of accounts of a lot of people, men and women, who walked by faith. These ones who we consider, you know, the pillars of faith, and we hold them up, and we say, I could never be like Elijah. I could never be like Ruth. I could never be like, insert, whoever your favorite Bible person is. Men and women who loved the Lord, who longed after him, who loved his word, who delighted in the word of God, who served him and loved the Lord, but the reality is every one of them is flawed. Every one of them is a sinner. Every one of them falls short of the glory of God. Every one of them left to their own devices, no matter how nice, no matter how victorious they may have been, every one of them would have found themselves eternally condemned to hell and eternally separated from God, left to themselves. In this book, as you study the Bible, there is one protagonist. There is one hero, one conqueror, one champion. It's not you, it's not me, it is Jesus alone who is the mighty God. He's the hero. He's the one who all of this is about. As Paul says in Colossians 1, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. If you want to know how God sees the world, how God would interact with this world, broken and flawed as it is, you look to Jesus. He is the exact imprint. He is God himself walking this earth. And John will say in his gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. All things were made by him and through him and for him. He is the light. He is the one to lead into the darkness and expel darkness the darkness that's why this matters to us that's why it matters that he is El Gibor. because when we look around at this world we're still living in chaos the same kind of chaos and ugliness and brokenness that Isaiah was prophesying against that the Israel's that the world was living in then we still find ourselves living in darkness now we're still waiting we're still longing for that day of complete restoration of complete peace of complete mercy and grace and hope we're still waiting for that day when Christ would return And while Christ did come and he did live and die and rise again, still we wait. Still we wait in our season of Advent. We wait, though we're not waiting for the suffering servant. We're not waiting for the son of a couple of nobodies from the middle of nowhere. We wait for mighty God to come in full, radiant, victorious, glorious, champion, hero mode. That doesn't mean we wait helplessly or hopelessly. Or passively. No, far from all of that. Because our help and our hope and our present and future are wrapped up in knowing that the one that we wait for is the mighty God. It is the one who has always been and always will be. In the midst of the darkness, the mighty God shows up to defeat enemies. The Israelites wanted him to defeat the Romans and the Philistines. Jesus had much bigger enemies to defeat when he was on earth. And so he heals, and he performs miracles, and he teaches, and in doing so, all of the things you see Jesus doing in the Gospels, all of those things, he is performing acts of war against his enemy, against our enemy, Satan, and sin, and death, and hell. And at the cross, he defeats them. God took what was a humiliating, painful, and vicious way to die, and he took the separation and condemnation so that, we could be, so that Christ could, for us, become our propitiation, the payment, the sacrifice owed for us. He did what no one else could do. He did what only he could do. That's why it's so important that we understand that Jesus was, yes, fully God, but also fully man. Because if he was God alone, You think some Roman soldiers could have taken him out? You think he could die at all? And without his death, without that bloodshed, there is no payment for sins. We're still on the hook for the sins of our lives, and we're still under the condemnation our sins deserve. If he was God alone, full deity, had no humanity to him, without his humanity, full and completely deity, the possibility that he could sin would be off the table. He wouldn't even have that option or ability to sin. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. So without even that humanity, now Jesus doesn't even have the ability to, he could be tempted, sure, but there's not even a possibility that he could sin. And so that no longer is that he endured, it removes his compassion, it removes his empathy. There would be no intimate relationship. That idea of him being our high priest of whom he understands our temptation, who we can go to, Him being our friend, our family with God, all of that is off the table if God is, if Jesus is just, is deity alone. I don't want to say just God because that's big. Jesus had to be fully human in order for us to have a new and right relationship with God through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. But he also had to be fully God. To take on the cross, To take on death, to defeat sin. It would take more than willpower. It would take more than behavior modification, more than accountability. It would take the very power and essence and presence of God Himself. It would take an authority and a might not possessed by anyone else. It would take a conquering warrior a battle-tested leader who could devise a strategy and then see it carried out to completion. Though it was the fear of death that would trap us, that it would worry us and control us, it was through death itself that the mighty God would reveal himself as the conquering hero. When Jesus goes to the cross for our sins, on our behalf, he redeems, he rescues, he saves, he defeats our enemies, and he stands alone as the mighty God resurrected that Sunday morning. Still today, for those who are in need of a Savior, the evidence of Christ's mighty power is overwhelming. For those who sense their own inability to live up to God's standards, the Apostle John writes, As many as received him... To them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. To any and all who would call on the name of Jesus for healing, for saving, for fulfillment, for rest, he is the mighty God who can and will save, who can and will redeem, who can and will comfort and protect. See, it matters to us today that this role, this title, this name of God, mighty God, is not just theological information. It's not just a concept to store away in the back of your brains, but the reality is that we can experience him today in this role today and now. So that when we live in line with the Holy Spirit, when we step into those moments that God has for us to be the light of the world, to point others to God, to pray for healing, to show the love and hospitality of Christ, we do so under and by the power of God, the mightiness of God. It is the same mighty power that empowers us today. In these busy holiday days, it is easy to sprint through and just kind of get through. I encourage you this morning to slow down. We have this gift of Advent, this season that we have built into our lives every year. To take the time to spend time with God, the God of all existence, who wants to have a relationship with you who wants to be in relationship with you, who wants to speak to you, and who wants to hear from you. We can rest and trust and dwell in knowing that this God, our God, our Savior, is the mighty God. And so may we all, as the Apostle Paul prayed for those in Ephesus, I pray that all of us would be rooted and grounded in love, that we might have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we might be filled with the fullness of God, and it is in there that we will find our comfort, find our protection, and find our
1: rest in Him who is the mighty God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you God, you are a lot to us. You are a lot. And sometimes it's easy to forget that you are mighty God. It's easy to forget the
0: power and the authority and the warrior. It's
1: easy to forget that Christ went to war on our behalf and it was painful, and it was violent, and it was messy. But he took this thing that was
0: supposed to defeat him, he took this bruise on his heel so that he could crush the head of that serpent. He took this bruise on his heel so that we could crush the head of that serpent, so that we could stand before you as your daughters and sons. that we could escape condemnation that we could escape humiliation so that we could find rest and right standing before you that relationship that pure perfect relationship that Adam
1: and Eve experienced in the garden we we can have that with you because of the death of Jesus God, it's amazing that you would take something so ugly as crucifixion and show your power and authority and might through it. Lord, help us when we get lost, when we get overwhelmed, when we get beaten down and consumed
0: by this world. Help us to remember who it is that is for us and not against us who it is that is our our rock and our shelter, who it is that is our protector and the one who is always
1: there to provide for us. We have as our God the hero. God, let that empower us, let that embolden us, let that strengthen us. Help us to
0: not just see that as just another piece of information to store away, but as something that actually changes the way we interact with this world, that changes the way we interact with one another, changes even the way that we interact with you, that we can confide and and come to you with any and every situation. You are so beyond, and, and we can only barely scratch the surface. We can only get these glimpses, these... Distant
1: shadows, these just small tastes of who you are. God, help us to be satisfied by those. Help them to cultivate in us a hunger to know you more.
0: To know, as, as, I, as I read, to, to know the height
1: and depth and width and length of the love that you have for us. God, we thank you for being mighty. And being for us. Pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.